Welcome to episode number 57 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs, interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way. My goal is to inspire you to live a life of meaning and purpose. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver. I'm a documentary filmmaker, storyteller, entrepreneur, and the host of this show, The My Story Podcast. And I'm so glad you stopped by to listen to the program today. Today on the show, I'll be talking with Lou Hamilton. Lou is an artist, a multi-award-winning filmmaker and podcaster. She makes abstract paintings, which aim to help create quiet, meditative spaces to live and work. Lou is also the author and creator of the book of illustrations, Brave New Girl, and the self-coaching book called Fear Less. She's also the founder of Create Lab Studios, which is a hub for creativity to thrive and make the world a better place. Lou is fearless in the pursuit of making creative practice and creative thinking the means for inspiring people to rise up against challenges and improve their lives and the world they live in. Lou is also the host of the Brave New Girl podcast. She's a busy lady. And she and I recently connected on the Clubhouse app and got to know each other. And I'm so excited for her to be here today to tell her story. So stay tuned. Hey, if you enjoy the show and get something out of it, please do a couple of things for me. First, please subscribe and then leave a review. This really helps me to know who's listening and that you enjoy what you hear. And you'll help more people discover this show and perhaps their purpose through the stories they hear. Thanks for being a part of this community of listeners. I'm so grateful for your faithful support. And now here's my interview with Lou Hamilton. So Lou Hamilton, welcome to the My Story podcast. It's really a privilege and an honor to have you here. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much, Conrad. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about who is Lou Hamilton and what do you do? So I've there's sort of several strings to my bow. I like to think of it as an umbrella with, uh, with a few spokes, uh, but all coming from the same thing. So where I'm at right now is um, I have um, my painting practice and um, I do commissions for big buildings, residential buildings, um, offices, office spaces. Um, and I also sell on Saatchi art and, and the other, I'd say that's kind of my passion. And then my purpose is the other side of, of what I do, which is I have my own podcast and, um, I founded a, an agency, um, helping other people to get onto podcasts because I reckon that I could, I can just about interview 52 women a, a year, but I wanted to help more women get out there. So uh, I formed the the agency, a bit of a sort of matchmaking brand. And, uh, and that sort of, that really feels like it fulfills my, my purpose um, to give a platform for, for women's voices. Um, and so I guess the paintings feed me so that I can help others. Hmm. So just for the, the, the listener, uh, you have an accent that sounds like you perhaps are from the UK. Tell me a little bit about where you are and, and where were you born and where were you raised? Yeah, I was born in the UK uh, in a small town outside London. And then when I was about 
six and a half, I think it was, uh, we moved to Montreal with my dad's work. So we lived there for a couple of years and, and it was, I'd really say it was my kind of the highlight of my childhood. I absolutely loved it. I loved that we had snow in the winter and we had sun in the summer, you know, we had real proper seasons and, uh, it was, yeah, it was great. We lived, we lived in an apartment building and, uh, there was a car park out the back and, uh, and all us kids would, would climb, clamber out of our bedroom windows, which went straight onto the car mm. park and the parking lot. And, uh, and we'd play, play there, um, make dens in the snow. And, um, so it was really exciting time, but it was also sort of a strange time to be in Montreal because it was, um, a lot of the um, people had escaped from Czechoslovakia. So a lot of my friends were um, Czech boys um, and either one or other of their parents that had managed to to escape. Um, there was one family who the um, the mother had had to stay behind because the, the sister was um, ill in hospital. So the father and the son um, got out. Um, and there was, you know, there was quite a lot of stories like that. You know, it was the early seventies was 69 to 71. So it was sort of quite an interesting time to be in Canada. Hmm. Did you, uh, did you speak French? You were living in Montreal. They speak French. Yeah, there, they do so. speak French. And I, I was only little, so we, we started hmm. to learn. They, you know, they were teaching us French at, at school from a very young age, um, but I, you know, I could say a few words and, uh, and then I remember once going up to the janitor, um, in, in this parking lot and, uh, and, and sort of going and have, going up to him for, for a chat and, and he refused to speak to me in, in English. Um, <laughs> and so I think at that time it was, you know, it was quite a thing that you, you know, you really had to make the effort to speak French. Um, so I was learning so you were there through your growing up years and when did you move back to the UK? Yeah, really just, we were only there for a couple of years and and then we moved back to the UK and um, grew up in a, a village, small village. Um, so it was very sort of, very sort of rural and, you know, the village was, um, had the Thames River flowing through it. And we, one of the, one of my friend's family had a rowing boat. So we used to spend the summers rowing about and you know in those days kids could just go off for days mm -hmm. at a time <laughs> and uh, so it felt very free and and you know very adventurous and um and in fact now I where I live now is is right on a river and we've got a little rowing boat so it kind of takes me back to my childhood mm -hmm. there's nothing like those childhood memories that because uh, of course, we look at them kind of through rose-colored glasses, right? And remember the highlights and the good times. And so, I mean, you're an artist now, and then you were have been a filmmaker and are a filmmaker. Were you artistic in your young years? Is that something that started a passion of yours when you were when you were growing up? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because when you're a child, most children are artistic and creative and play and try things out and are curious and um it's only through secondary school where that starts to you either you know take it as a subject or um you focus mainly on ac academic subjects and and that sort of playfulness and curiosity is sort of 
um, timetabled out of you. <laughs> but I did choose to to do art, and and then um, just the way um, exams were um, set up, you had to choose a certain amount of subjects, and and it it didn't work out that I could do art as part of my subjects, and so I chose all the others, and and then I decided I would do art out of school. So I found myself a teacher and a, um, and a gallery where I could go and work. And I negotiated with the school to let me go and, um, spend my lunch times going down, down there and doing it. So I guess I was determined that it was, that it was going to be part of what I did, but I didn't think of it as being something that I would then go on and do. I just thought it was something that Mm -hmm. I I just thought it was just something that I was part of who I was. So I never really contemplated it as, as something you did as an adult. You know, people didn't really talk about that. Um, so I was actually going to go and do English at university. And, and, uh, and then we had this really sort of pivotal um, lecture at school. And it was at a very kind of dark time in the UK at that time. It was... There was mass unemployment. There were lots of strikes. There was, um, it was really sort of a dark time for, for people in, in Britain. And, and one of our teachers said, there's going to be a time in the future where you're going to need, um, you know, there's not that, you know, it's hard to get jobs. Um, and at some point in the future, um, he just predicted that uh, you would need to know how to use your leisure time. So, you know, which is pretty sort of prophetic, you know, where we are, what, 40 years mm-hmm. later, um, have, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, um, when actually the things that people turned to were their creativity. Um, so I don't, I don't think that that teacher had any sense that that was going to be the kind of thing that was happening, but he did have a sense that the world could change and, you know, was not reliable, um, and, you know, the idea that, you know, what you do is you, you leave school, possibly go to university, definitely get a job, um, do that job probably for most of your adult life. And then you retire and, um, you don't live much longer into that because your pension won't last that long. So it was kind of, that's how it was sort of laid out before you. And, and when I, I listened to him and I just thought, you know, do I really want to do many more exams or, you know, what do I, if I, if I could, if I had to spend my time doing something I loved, what would that be? And I thought, well, that's art, isn't it? So I quick, I Mm. immediately changed direction and applied to art school and, um, yeah, chose my direction, (laughs) um, (laughs) which was not the easiest path, but, um, it is the Mm. one that I've sort of stuck to. I know sometimes when I've had uh, my my wife's cousin is an artist and he, uh, you know, when he had a desire to go off to the Corcoran Art Institute, his his parents were like, what are you going to do with an art degree? Did did you get some of that feedback from your from your family? Well, my grandfather was a very famous painter, um, but he died sadly at the age of 43. um, Mm -hmm. And he was my mum's dad. And so she'd until she, he died when she was six, but, you know, she lived with him as a painter, um, as a successful painter. And, and so she sort of, she kind of got it. Whereas my dad was, you know, he was an accountant, so he was much more 
well, can you do, if you want to do art, can you do something that, that might give you a job at the end of it, like, you know, graphic design or, but I was like, I was determined, no, it's got to be fine art. <laughs> so yeah, so I went down that route. Mm-hmm. Now, did you go to university for art then? Well, at that time it was, um, it was just called an art school, although it was that later turned into a university. So yes, we went through my first degree um, and then I did a second degree a few years later, a master's in public art, which was much more focused around the idea of public spaces and that as an artist, you had a responsibility to, if you were going to put an intervention into a, some, into a public space that you had to consider the people that were going to be using that space and, mm. and give it, you know, the, the context that your work was going to go into. Um, so it became very site specific and I was doing quite a lot of sculptures then. Um, mm. but during the course of that degree, I started to sort of get my hands on a, a video recorder and it was very sort of early days, you know, that, that, that artists could, um, get hold of cameras, you know, they'd come down enough in price that, that we could start to play. And, uh, so yeah, so it kind of went from painting and, you know, various kind of multimedia to then sculpture scraps huge sculptures in scrap steel welding and, and then, um, to video art and installation. Hmm. So quite so a wiggly route. Kind of- so how did you then get into documentary filmmaking? Because I know you produced a number of documentaries. Yeah, it's really interesting when I look back on how things sort of turn up. You know, you work so hard in a direction and you think, you know, I'm working really hard. I'm I'm doing all the right things. And then something happens. It's almost like a sort of cur- curveball or a something that comes from the sidelines that you're not expecting and sort of takes you in a completely different direction. So, um, there I was doing sort of artist films and, um, you know, and that's a kind of very specific type of, of video, you know, they, they tend to be towards sort of going in galleries or, um, interventional, uh, interventions in spaces. Um, and, um, somebody that, um, I knew vaguely in the village where I was living, um, I went to a party and she was there and she just got a commission to do a, um, a three part series on terminal illness. And she'd seen one of my most recent artist films and she just asked me, how do you fancy coming and working for me and, and being a documentary director? Mm-hmm. So I'm always one to say yes. Um, and then find out later how you do it. And, uh, so I, so I said yes. And, and what was going to be a three, uh, an 18 month project ended up being a three year project. What we found was that when you're, when you're working with people who are terminally ill and they have something to live for, i.e. being filmed and telling their story and sharing their experiences, making sense of you know, what they were going through and somehow leaving a legacy that enabled them to live longer. So we ended up doing, uh, to uh, filming for longer and, and having more episodes and talking about, uh, one of the episodes was talking about, you know, what, what helps people to live longer and that's some having something to live, live for. And that series was, uh, was, was well received, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was, 
it received a, a BAFTA and uh, nominated for other awards. And um, yeah, it was it was really well supported as well by by the broadcasters and and we were really well looked after. You know, they you know in a, at a time when you know you couldn't you couldn't even film um, a, an injection. You couldn't film the needle going into people's skin. Um, and, you know, we were considered as filmmakers, you know, how are we going to be able to cope with, with this process of, of being with 12 families who were all going through, you know, this incredibly difficult time. And of course that, and you, we, you know, we got to know them, we got to be part of the families and, and so channel four provided, um, all of us with, um, a ther- therapist mm. and, uh, and that sort of helped us. interestingly it sort of brought up all the previous baggage and and uh and I think what was really pivotal doing that that documentary was seeing how people really come to life when they're uh when when they've come to the point where they accept that they are going to die they really live for the moment and um you know they they don't bother with stuff that's not important they they use their time they you know every second counts and and i think we all felt coming away from that that experience was well you know why why wait till we know we're dying um obviously we're all dying but why wait till we know that we're Im- imminently dying mm-hmm. to really live our life and i think that and uh, of course you know we we all try to do that but then you forget and you get sort of swept up into mm everyday life and but that has mm. come back to me um during the pandemic is yeah what what is important what makes me happy mm. and how do i want to spend my time and do i want to be chasing 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 or do i want to be um embracing you know the everyday and the simple simple things that that make me happy and the people around me happy um so yeah, it's sort of taken me two goes, you know, a series on terminal illness and a pandemic to for me to actually get it. But I think I'm there. <laughs> hmm. You know, it's really amazing how those kind of experiences really shape who we are and can shape us for good or for bad. I mean, you know, you can have some experiences that take people down a real dark path and others that motivate one to, you know, live a life of purpose and meaning. And uh, in working on, and you've produced other projects, you know, in in the documentary world, what's one of those films or projects that you, you really, like this kind of perhaps was your signature piece or that this was your favorite uh, film? I mean, all of them kind of in a way are our are, are favorites, but, uh, uh, and I know what that's like, but what, what one that really says, this is one I'm, I'm most proud of. Well, I say I'd say that um a brutal piece was was one of our favorites because um we made it off our own bat. Um we decided we were going to make it because we wanted to make it in the way that we wanted. Um we didn't want commissioners breathing down our backs and and you know we had experienced certain things in the death series that you know having to ask questions that we really didn't want to ask people who were dying or their family you know it felt too personal and too intimate and and too invasive and and we didn't want to be doing that with with this with this film and this was about um 
soldiers who had experienced were experienced post post traumatic stress disorder as a result of their time in the armed forces and uh, we'd we'd actually um how it had started was we we were listening to the radio one day and we just heard this um little excerpt of the guy um that had been at the Falklands war and he was describing how he had been in the middle of battle and he lost his friend and had been killed had witnessed his his friend being killed and and he was just he he was sort of running and fell down into this ditch and and the ditch was full of um dead argentinian soldiers and and he was just sort of lying there and in the mud he saw this it was like uh, i can't remember what they they're called it was called a, a sony walkman which mm. is kind of like a a cassette recorder with mm-hmm. headphones um back in the day anyway there was one of those lying beside one of the bodies and he he put he put it on and he just pressed play and it was this beautiful classical piece called the emperor and he just lay there in in the mud and watching the the planes going over and the sound of battle and and he just you know just thinking you know what on earth is what is this you know i'm in the middle of a battle i've lost my friend i'm listening to this music and and we were just so moved by his story that we we approached him and we said could we make a short drama and uh, and we did that and we you know it was all set to to that piece the emperor and uh, and then we got to know him and 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 he was sort of part of um he was sort of helping these other soldiers who had been um terribly affected by um by their experiences in the war and and were all suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder and and he said to us would would we be interested in making a film and and filming with with him and and his group and and he took us um to sort of all these different places and and showed us you know introduced us to various experts and and um a place called combat stress which was a a home that like a sort of uh, a retreat where these soldiers could go and and be helped to to heal um and so it was yeah very very powerful um and what they were saying at the time was there were more people that died of of suicide since the Falklands war than had died actually mm-hmm. during the war um so it was very profound and we we felt that you know at least we were able to to help in some way by the film and 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 he still writes to us to this day and asks for copies of the film to 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 give to people that have newly approached him um and this is probably i don't know 15 years on um mm. so yeah um i i guess that's that's one that's very close to my heart mm. sounds amazing I'd, i would love to see that film if, if it uh, and where can people find your films if they're interested in those yeah, um, I don't think that um, death is is online. Um, that belongs to Channel Four. I don't think you can. Um, there is a sort of very rough version of of a brutal piece on Vimeo, I think, um, or on our website, um, which is Create Lab Films. Um, so yeah, so that's and and what was what really struck me was that we, you know we were filming with a with a psychiatrist and we were filming in the Priory, which is a um a place where people go when they've sort of really 
reached the end of their tether with their mental health. And, um, and one of the psychiatrists that we filmed with um, was using this new, te- it was new then, uh, relatively new then, um, technique called EMDR. And mm-hmm. um, it's a it's eye movement desensitization technique. And it helps to switch off the, um, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and, and kind of minimize them in, in your mind. Like a sort of, you're watching a television screen slowly with, with practicing this technique, the, the television screen gets smaller and smaller in your mind. Anyway, while I was, um, interviewing the, uh, the psychiatrist, I was, I was sort of thinking this, what he's talking about with PTSD, it, it sort of feels like I might have experienced this and, um, and so I did actually go to somebody that practiced EMDR and I sort of told her about my experiences, both with um, doing this film with, with the soldiers and with the, the film on the people with terminal illness, um, but also um, further back into, into my mid-20s when I was living in Lockerbie and um, the uh, jumbo jet Pan Am 103 was blown up up out of the sky above us and everything, you know, everyone on board was killed and everything came cascading down into our midst. And whilst, you know, I didn't know anyone personally that was killed um, and, you know, I wasn't injured and I, you know, I didn't lose my home, but, uh, and because of that, I didn't think that, you know, I didn't allow myself, I didn't acknowledge the trauma of, of that experience. And so I sort of just suppressed it and, um, and it wasn't until later in, when I was making those films that I, th- those things started to surface again. And, and I realized that the fear that I experienced in my everyday life, which stopped me doing things, the terrible, terrible nightmares that I experienced every night, um, my sort of hypervigilance to anything, um, the, the sense of sort of threat, ever-present sense of threat, I thought it just been me until I was interviewing these 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 psychiatrists, and I realized actually, you know, that's that's me. That's me experiencing mm. these things, and and I need to do something about it. And and so I did. Yeah. So that event in Lockerbie was kind of your nine eleven in a way. You know what yeah. we experienced here in the states, and I'm sure. I don't remember all the details from that. I remember when it happened, but I guess it was it was pretty devastating in that community as well, where the where the crash came in, right? Yeah, we were a small town, um, really very little larger than than a village, and um, you know it was a sleepy place. Um, I'd actually moved there because I'd been living in London and. You know, living in a sort of pretty hairy part of London, it was very dangerous. It was a time in the early 80s that was, you know, it was a pretty scary time to be a single young woman in London. You know, we talk about the Me Too movement, but, it, you know, then it was it was in your face the whole time. And so when I finished art school, you know, we'd moved up to Lockerbie um, into this kind of sleepy little town. We were actually living just outside, but we'd bought a, a church um, with a hundred foot steeple, um, Mm. to do our, our sculpture work. And so, you know, the night that, that it happened, um, we were, you know, we heard the, 
the explosion and and then sort of all all hell broke out mm. but yes it was it was absolutely devastating for the community and people kept coming back to to the village year after year after year you know and the you know we were taken over by the world's press there was reporters everywhere mm. you know we, it was this this event completely took over everybody's lives and and eventually I think probably I think I went back for after for the 10th anniversary and and people were saying in the village you know we just we don't want to be remembered for this anymore you know we just want to be left to to get on with our lives and um and strangely my partner and he's a cameraman and he was working for someone who was making a film a series of films on Lockerbie so he was going back and and he was finding out the with the director um uncovering things about Lockerbie that sort of helped me in a way to sort of start to make sense of what had happened um mm. but yeah devastating and and you know something that that lives with you forever as I'm sure people who went through or lost people in 9-11 you know still to this day you know feel repercussions of that mm -hmm. so how do events like that and the pandemic how do those type of events influence your art well i think with with my painting um i'm the way that i make the work is that it's very sort of chaotic and haphazard and very very strong colors in the first few layers and then the final layer I close everything down I I sort of bring it right down to the the, the calmest simplest shapes and and colors and um and I know that when a piece is is complete when I um I I kind of feel there's a sort of hum coming off the off the piece and I know then it's complete and and so the work is what I want it to to be is very meditative and that when you're you're sitting in front of it you you feel a sense of calm and it's a place that um everything is very quiet and and um yeah it feels like a meditation and so it feels like that for me painting and 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 also I hope for for people who look at the work Mm -hmm. And you've recently, more recently, kind of taken a dive into the world of podcasting. And you have a show, I believe it's called The Brave New Girl. So tell me about how that came about and, and what's your why behind that? Yeah. So, you know, it's hard work making documentaries, trying to get them off the ground, mm -hmm. trying to sell them, trying to fund I them. Well know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it takes quite a big chunk of your life even to make one. You know, it's different from my partner because someone, you know, they've got a film, so they'll just say, oh, can you come and film it for a few days? Or Whereas when you're directing, it takes, you know, all the time when you're, when you're trying to um, write it and you'll fund it, film it, edit it, you know, it, it can take years. Um, and, and I felt that um, a lot of my creative creativity was just being lost in in time and frustration, and um, and that was partly why I started painting. But then um, I started to kind of hear about uh, podcasting in the UK. We were a lot further behind, quite a lot further behind than than the US. And um, and in fact, when I brought out my first book, my 
agent said to me, oh, we must start getting you onto podcasts. And I didn't even know what a podcast was at that <laughs> point. This was 2016, 17. And, uh, but, but by the time I was thinking about creating a podcast, I thought maybe we'd do it. We'll film it. We'll make, do it as um, a live event. People can come along. Uh, we'll have a, a speaker. We'll film the speaker and, and we'll put it on YouTube. And uh, so that's what we were doing as part of, so I'd, I'd made these two books. I'd created these two books and had them published, Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless, which is also published in the US and, and actually did very well in the US. And then my second book, which was Fearless and went much more into my whole story and and how you can sort of overcome fear. So it was more of a sort of self-help book. And And when I'd had those published, I wanted to sort of, expand on that somehow and and really sort of think about real life brave new girls and and so um that's how the podcast started but with filming and then the pandemic happened so obviously we couldn't do live events and we couldn't be filming and we couldn't have um an audience and uh and I thought I'm quite good at sort of turning things around so you know I think okay so that's we can't do that but um what could I do and and I'd been thinking about um, going uh, uh, doing remote recording, and and the technology was kind of stopping me. But with the pandemic, it was just like, well, this is I've, this is the time. I've got to overcome that. And uh, so I bought the the equipment. I did a bit of research, bought the equipment, and just went for it. And uh, and absolutely loved it. So it meant that I could record every week. I could record women all around the world. Um, and I really could create a platform of brave new girls who uh, come and, and talk about how they found courage through, you know, all the messiness that is is life and work and business. Mm. And um, and I guess that sort of, you know, that was my journey. But but everyone has that, um, you know, at some point there's a there's a moment in in their life. My uncle always says, you know, when your pie crust breaks and you know, something really bad happens and you have to think, you know, what, what am I doing? What do I want? How can I move forward? How can I rise up again? Um, and so, yeah, that's what Brave New Girl podcast, um, the, the women that come on, um, share those stories. Hmm. And that can be found on, 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 on podcast platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, um, so who are some of the people who most influenced you and moved you towards success? Yeah, I always find that a really difficult question um, because when I was younger, I didn't really have role models um, that I looked to. Um, as an artist, the the artists that I looked to were male. They, you know, it was Mark Rothko, it was... Um, Joseph Boyce, it was Anton Tapies, it was, you know, very physical, um, kind of robust work. And, and that was kind of what, um, what moved me. And it was uh, very much what my, inspired my work. And in a sense, still does in terms of, in terms of my paintings. But in terms of, of becoming an entrepreneur, what I've, what I've experienced is, incredible women who um have come into my life or I've come into their lives and they have influenced me sort of every step of the way so you know it was you know it was a woman director um 
owner of a um, a documentary uh, television company who hired me, even though I had two tiny kids and I was going to be having to commute backwards and forwards and, you know, working all over, you know, they're having to be very flexible with time. But she was brilliant. You know, she didn't have kids herself, but she was very accommodating to me. She knew that I would do the work, but she let me decide when I was going to do it. So so she was incredible. Um, And then as I sort of moved forward into... um, more into business um it's been the women who have been ahead of me who have who have been really successful and shown me really how to be fearless how to have courage in business how to um in a sense use that creativity to duck and dive and um you know every time something doesn't go right that's just a reason to learn and to move on um, and so it has been the women that have have shown me the way on that. And and you know in the in the book I I've done a drawing of um, brave new girl and she's standing on a ladder and the ladder is on the shoulders of a row of women who are standing in front of her, and that really sums it up for me. Hmm. What in your life now produces the most fear? Uh, I'd say as a mother of two adult children in their 20s I can pretty much deal with fear for myself in my life with with one caveat which I'll come back to um but it absolutely terrifies me (laughs) with my for my children um anything going wrong um you know they're perfectly capable of dealing with things and and managing things and living their life and but I think as a parent I think you know that pit of of fear I don't think that ever goes away and and in fact my grandmother um when she was about 94 and she had four children and two stepchildren and multiple grandchildren she said no I'm afraid that fear never goes away (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that that's a fear that um but I actually read a really good book that helped helped me with that and and what it was was that when you feel that fear for things that terrible things that could happen. And in my, you know, I have experienced terrible things happening. Um, things do, terrible things do happen. Um, but when you're worrying about things happening, making, you know, imagining things happening, um, this book was really brilliant. And what it did, what it said was to pull your imagination back into the present moment and to be grateful for the things that are happening right now. And so, you know, my children are absolutely fine right now in this second, and I can be really appreciative for that. And um, and that kind of grounds me and that pulls me out of the fear, um, back into reality, really, because, you know, what I'm predicting in my head is is pure fantasy, um, you know, a nightmarish um, concern and worry which is not, which is not real. And probably, you know, things will happen that I didn't even imagine, but, you know, I know that I cope with bad things. You know, we all can cope. Um, but rather than spending, wasting that time, um, imagining the worst, why not just appreciate what's happening right now and the good stuff Mm -hmm. that's happening right now. Yeah. And I can totally concur with you on that. I mean, just last night we were, I was laying in bed and our son, we hadn't heard from our son all day. He lives in Orlando, Florida. And I was like, have you heard from, have you heard from Spencer? And my wife was like, no, have you? And I said, no. 
So like, so I texted him and said, Hey, are you okay? I haven't heard from you today, you know? And after 30 minutes, he responds, yeah, I'm fine. I just had, you know, a late night last night, you know, working and I'm tired and, you know, I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I was imagining, you know, yeah, crazy yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. Well, you imagine the worst. Mm-hmm. And, right. Uh, um, yeah. So I, so that's hard. I do find that hard, but I, but I'm, you know, I have techniques. I learn techniques. You know, if I, if I, if I'm struggling, I'll look for ways to, to help myself. And the other thing is, is health. Um, as you get older, suddenly health, your, <laughs> your health starts to feel kind of very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've suffered very, very badly with, with migraines, but I, but actually I've found I've discovered that to be a gift too, that because I know what really severe pain is like, um, it's made me look at the things that I can do to, to make myself as healthy as possible. And, and I wouldn't have done that unless I was really suffering. And so I've really, I've, I've, you know, I went vegan, I'd given up alcohol. Um, I eat really healthy food. I've, you know, I exercise, I try and sleep well in you know, all the kind of pillars of, of good health that we're, we're mm-hmm. taught are the things that we need to have put in place. Uh, um, my kind of paranoia about, um, ill health in the future has kind of ensured that I've, I've set myself up, um, at least for, uh, giving myself the best chance. I think too many of us just go through life not thinking about that and we eat whatever because we like it and it's good and we don't realize what it's actually doing to us. I know we have cut out things like also we don't drink any sodas, any kind of, you know, Pepsi and Coke and things like that. We just, it's just too much sugar. And my wife grew up in the South, in South Carolina. And so they're there, they, they drink sweet tea. And so that was her drink. You know, she would drink copious amounts of sweet tea every day until I think a year ago she decided to cut that out and it's transformed her life in mm. just, you know, she, now when she tastes some sweet tea, she's like, Oh, this is way too sweet. This is too much sugar. And so we've we'll, you know, really also made some, some progress to you know, really be more careful what we eat and less red meat. And, you know, I, I, I personally can't totally go like vegetarian or vegan, but, uh, I have to have a steak or a hamburger now and then, but uh, we've definitely cut back in how much we consume of those things. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you do, you do what you can, um, to help yourself and, you know, and, and, you know, different people have different metabolisms and different bodies mm -hmm. and different needs. So I, you know, it's not a cookie cutter for, you know, one, one site, one shape fits all or whatever. It's, uh, you kind of have to listen to your, your body and it tells you, doesn't it, what you need mm -hmm. to do and what you don't need to do. And yeah, giving up alcohol was sort of one of the best things I could have done. I really didn't fancy having migraines and hangovers. So yeah, <laughs> one had to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. What piece of advice that, that someone gave you that has really helped you and guided you along the way? My grandmother she always said, from little acorns grow giant oaks. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I've, I've always used that as both for myself, but also for my children. You know, when we're standing in front of a sort of what seems like a gargantuan problem, um, 
you know, to to kind of just really chunk it down and and you know think of the tiniest tiniest part of it that you can work on first and and then to kind of take it one step at a time. So that really helped me. But also, you know, the other aspect of that is, you know, you plant your seeds and, you know, I've planted many seeds and some haven't come to anything and some come to things sort of quite quickly. And other times, you know, it really has taken decades to um, become that giant oak, but it, it does come eventually. So, so I think her saying um, has helped me, yeah, twofold, you know, what one takes small steps and the other is pl- plant the seeds and, and then let them do their thing, do th- nurture them, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, you know, um, exercise infinite patience. <laughs> so what are some of those big life lessons? And you've probably touched on these. What are some of those big life lessons that you've learned along the way? Well, I think fear, um, is, is the biggest one really for me that, you know, I have always been fearful ever since I was a child before anything bad actually happened. I think I was just born scared. I was very shy. Um, I found it very hard to sort of talk about things or talk to other people, you know, to, to talk to people I didn't know. And, and that sort of, you know, took me right into my sort of adulthood and, and it was interesting when I was sort of writing out my my story to um, to tell to show you, and um, and I wrote sort of two sentences. One was that my cousin died, um, and she was I was very very close to her. And when we were twenty six, she died by choking on something. And then when I was thirty, I I created um, this performance piece with a, with a friend of mine, um, and we invited four hundred women to. Um, say things that they hadn't been able to and um, it was a big performance in a, a large venue in London with um, uh, video and and singing and poetry and everything and and it was only when I wrote those two lines next to them I suddenly realized that the the choking was a was really symbolic for me the loss of her and and the loss of her for for her losing her life and then you know me wanting to create something where many many women could um voice the things that that mattered to them and that was you know that was 20 odd years ago and so then when I was creating this agency to help women um speak on podcasts I suddenly made the connection that's why it's so important to me to help women to tell their story, to be able to speak out, to to have a platform where they can, you know, be global, you know, from their home, they can tell their story and their message and their mission. And and that can reach, you know, people across the world. And and if I can help them do that, then that really satisfies that that sense of purpose for me. But it was only in writing my story out to you that I realized that connection. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. What is the importance and significance of someone telling their story for the person telling it and the person receiving it? I think for the person telling it, 
it makes sense of everything. It makes sense of, you know, you having the opportunity to sort of look back and and join the dots and and see what were the key moments, what were the things that that went badly, badly wrong, and and the evidence that you survived, you you came out of it, you 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 learned from it, you did things to to move forward, you you weren't just stuck in that place. And, and that evidence can help you every time some, some new challenge comes along, you've done it before you can do it again. And I think, so I think when you look back and, and tell your story and, and see how you've learned, how you've grown, how you've evolved, um, and, and got stronger and braver and more courageous and, and you have the proof that you've done it. Um, and I think that so that's for you. But then when you tell the story to others, then you know, you don't know who is listening to that story. And, you know, it might be landing on the ears of somebody who really needs to hear that story right then. And it makes the difference between them being able to get up in the morning or not, um, or being able to move forward in their life or not, or being able to pick up the pieces or not. And I think that's why we love stories. That's why we've always loved stories because as, as a community, we connect through stories. We've done that since we were in living in caves. You know, the fact that we can now, you and I can now talk with microphones across the, the, the earth to each other from our, you know, from the comfort of our own homes. It's essentially the same thing as when we were living in our caves with our communities where we tell stories because that's how we learn and that's how we grow and that's how we connect. Hmm. What do you want your legacy to be in the art that you've created or in the projects that you've worked on? Well, I think it's, it is twofold. I think with, with the podcast and with the agency, you know, I want to be able to create a platform for women to say and be and do everything that they are absolutely capable of you know to live their best selves live their best lives and if I can you know women have helped me to to do that and and that's part of being human is to to pass on what some, what someone has helped you you help others and and that's I think that's a really you know for me that's a really important legacy and and my responsibility um and with my paintings, you know, if I can create these these pockets of calm and meditation for people in a crazy world, then yeah, that's that's what I would love love to be able to do. That's what I that's what I aim to do every time I paint a painting. So, what's the next big thing for you? Well, I'm I'm just about to start a massive commission um, for a big building, residential building in. Um, the city of London, Canary Wharf. Uh, it's uh, 116 paintings. Um, wow. We're in April now, and they've got to be done by the end of October. Hmm. So I am going to be painting a lot between now and then. Wow. So that's huge. <laughs> um, and with the podcast, we're about to t hit 10,000 downloads. So I'm very excited about that because it's that's you know awesome. it has built organically. Um, it's the women who've come on have shared with their communities. Um, and so together we've, we've grown that. And, and I feel really proud of, of, of all of us that we've, that we've achieved that in, in this year of the pandemic. 
with the podcast agency. Yeah, I love being a matchmaker. I love bringing people mm. together and connecting people and, and yeah, doing what I can in, in that way. Mm -hmm. Very good. So what's the best way for someone to contact you or your organization? So with the, uh, with the painting, either on Saatchi Art, um, Lou Hamilton, or uh, my uh, website for the paintings is louhamiltonart.com. Um, and then the Silk, um, the podcast guest agency is silk-studios.co.uk. So you can contact me through that. And, um, and then, of course, the podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, Lou, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show today and for you to, to tell us your story. And I really appreciate your time. And I really look forward to diving deeper into the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Conrad. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, you've been a very, very kind and uh, generous host. Well, thank you. Thanks, Lou, for sharing your story and your insights into the world. And thanks also for your focus on making the world a better place. And thank you for listening today. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. And please share this episode with a friend or a colleague. The music on today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music at iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Finally, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast. <laughs>